Let me read a few verses from Genesis. Um, Sexuality, uh, nobody would have used the word gender 20 years ago the way it's being used today, or 30 years ago anyway. Uh, it It was a grammatical word, not a social word, but now it's totally a social word. And there are all kinds of reasons for that in terms of contemporary culture, but nothing is more important, or maybe maybe there is something more important. Second in importance, probably, to the cross and how manhood and womanhood are defined by the church in its relationship to Jesus. Second in importance would be that God created you, male and female. So let me read that, and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to get into it for a few minutes. This is Genesis 1, starting at verse 26. Then God said, let us, I think that's a, a hint at the mystery of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over the earth, all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and fill the earth and subdue it. The reason you exist as male or female is because God decided to do it that way. So if that's not the most important thing in the world to know about who you are, it's second most important. So Father, I pray now for these few minutes that that the wonder of being human in the image of God as male or female together would land upon these young people more gloriously, more seriously, more heavily, and more wonderfully than it ever has before. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I asked Matt Chandler a few years ago, he's the pastor of Village Church in Dallas, written a book or two, and uh, I said, Matt, you're cool. I'm not cool, you're cool. I'm old, you're young. You're 30-something, and you're cool, and you have a huge church, and young people love to listen to you talk, and you got a beautiful wife and kids, and and uh, you really seem to be in sync with what's happening, and and yet you hold this view of manhood and womanhood that I do, and it's not cool, and it's really out of step with American culture. How did you get to be that way? That's weird. And he gave me a very short answer. He said, the big blue book. That was his answer. The big blue book. 
which was very encouraging to me. Wayne Grudem and I, in 1990 and 1991, that's before you existed, right? Edited this book. So this book has been around for 24 years. And uh, it's called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, A Response to Evangelical Feminism. Wayne and I and lots of others were fighting this battle in the 70s and 80s, and it was bloody. I, I don't get called names anymore like I got called names in those days. My view to say Virginia Mollencott was obscene, and she said so at Bethel College where I talked, and she came to speak. That view is obscene. It was a bloody 20 years or so, and I didn't expect to win that battle. And in a sense, you don't win any battle in the world. You, you just get more or less people who either agree with you or don't agree with you, and you, you hope you're being faithful to the Bible and that if people see that, not because of who you are, Matt Chandler is, because they see that, they, they embrace it and they build their lives around it. So it's a little backdrop to how long this has been a burden to me. Wayne Grudem and I were lone voices in some sense uh, calling for what we now call uh, complementarianism. Just a big, awful word. But what can you do? The, it, the word complementarianism was created to position ourselves between two extremes, which we saw very prevalent in the world and in the church. And to this day, all over the world, these extremes exist. You've probably tasted them. The one extreme would... I, don't even, I hardly want to put a name on it because I don't want to tar anybody with things that they don't believe, but it would be the, the more feminist, the more egalitarian view of minimizing sexual differences, minimizing them so that don't, don't put me in any box as woman, don't put me in any box as man, I'm just human and I don't want any door shut to me and I, I don't like any of those emphases of, of, of distinction. So that's one view over there that we didn't think was biblical. We thought, whoa, 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 whoa. There really are differences, and those differences in the Bible are taken seriously, and God's glory and human happiness and flourishing and ministry and mission will go better if people line themselves up with God's way. So that's one extreme we were trying to distance ourselves from, the kind that, that minimized discounted, deep differences among men on the one side and women on the other. The other extreme, of course, would be an uh, abusive, domineering machismo that results in women being demeaned, hurt, marginalized, you, you're, you've grown up in a culture where that is so automatically disapproved of, you may not be able to feel how huge that is in the world. I mean, there are whole cultures, whole religions that so abuse and mistreat and demean 
woman as woman today. Not just historically, like we, we made mistakes or something like that, but that they exist today. So we didn't want to be associated with that. We didn't, we didn't, that's not what we're saying. That's not what we mean. Somehow demean and belittle. And Christianity, even though a person like me will be viewed by a feminist as way too traditional and um, demeaning, I revel in the truth that Christianity, as it has moved through history, has always been good for women. Always been good for women. But without, without God, men are cruel. Men use their superior strength. And, and everybody knows men have, in general, superior strength. Is it not amazing that in the Olympic Games, there's not one where men and women compete with each other? Why is that? Must be really galling to a lot of feminists. Well, everybody knows that's not fair because men have just, by virtue of no virtue in themselves, have chromosomes that set them up to be able to throw things farther and run faster and lift more weights and that sort of thing. And men use that terribly without God. Or without the fumes left over from God's influence on a culture that they don't know where it comes from. So, here was the question I was asking. And I never got a good answer. I'll ask you. If, if you're somewhere different than I am on this issue, come up and give me your answer at the end. I, I didn't want to make the debate mainly around, now what things can women do and what things can men not do, or, or what men do not do. You know, just line it up, list here, list here. This is a women thing, this is a men thing. I didn't want to set it up that way. Here's the question I asked to set it up the way I wanted to set it up, namely. I would ask evangelical feminists, um, if you have a nine-year-old daughter, and we'll do the same thing for sons. If you have a nine-year-old daughter, she comes to you. Mom, mommy, what does it mean to grow up and be a woman and not a man? Well, you got a nine-year-old son. Daddy, what does it mean to grow up and be a man and not a woman? Now, that question is, is posed that way for a reason. Because if you start saying to her, well, honey, say you're the mom, it means you grow up to be strong and mature and look nice and be intelligent and be person of integrity and to be articulate and to be useful in society and, and, and. Now, she probably wouldn't be able to say this, but I would if I were listening. I'd say, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what she asked because that applies to men too, all of them. 
She asked, Mommy, what does it mean to grow up and be a woman and not a man? So don't, don't answer anything that applies to both. That's the question that will not be answered. And without an answer to that question, you know what happens? Generations come into being, you're probably one of them, who are not able to say who they are as male and female. They don't know. And if you say, oh, it's easy. Women have periods. Women have breasts. Women don't have facial hair. Women can sing soprano. That's easy. That's, you women know, and you men know, if that's all it is, it's not very important. It is very important, and that is not all it is, and you know it's not. You know that being a woman is to be a woman down to the bottom of your toes. And you know that to be a man is to be a man down to the bottom of your toes. And if you try to say, no, it's just plumbing, just hormones, just XY, XX, it's no, you know better. It's demeaning. That's demeaning to manhood and womanhood to say it's just plumbing. We're just all hermaphrodites with different plumbing. That is so far from what the Bible portrays as the beauty of male and female. So that was the question I asked to try to set it up that way. I never got a good answer. I never got a good answer. You, you don't find feminists writing books in answer to that question. It's very hard to answer for one reason. It's not easy, so I will try to answer it. Um, if, if you don't um, try to steer a course between the uh, gender leveling, nullification of differences over here and the abuses of women over here, and by the way, Pornography is an abuse of women, guys. Prostitution is an abuse of women. Sex trafficking is an abuse of women. So if you think it's in, in the nice egalitarian American culture, it's not prevalent, you're blind as a bat. You look at pornography, you're a sexist. <laughs> They're somebody's daughter with a broken heart, a parent with a broken heart, and she's out selling herself like that, and you're on it, loving it. So, it's here in the room and in America, and not just in Islam, where they stone them if they have sex when they shouldn't. It's here. If, if we don't position ourselves biblically between those two extremes, then we won't be able to raise a generation with anything but confusion. If we don't teach little boys and little girls what it means to grow up and be a man and not a woman, a woman and not a man, it doesn't result in a nice, neutral 
equality. It results in distortions. They're all over the place. They're in the movies all over the place. And they're in real life over the place where men will try to figure out what it means to be a man and they'll do it with a gun. They'll do it with laying her as many times as they can to be a man. What else did they, I mean, what else could it mean? I can do it. All the guys are doing it and that's what it means to be cool. That's what it means to be man. I got a knife and I got a sexual organ. And she, what, what, will, what will she do? What will it be? What, what does it mean to be a woman in that, in that culture? So here's what I want to do. I want to say a word about, about uh, humanity, just being human, and then tell you a story that I made up to illustrate complementarianism and then close with a couple of texts. And we've got to go really fast here because this is just short, even though this is a big, fat book. And still in print if you, if you want to pursue it. Um, Agatha Christie, the crime novelist, said, I like living. I have sometimes been wildly, despairingly, acutely miserable, racked with sorrow. But through it all, I still know quite certainly that just to be alive is a grand thing. I just want to say amen. I mean, haven't you sometimes, this is sweet, you're standing at a window, you're looking out, maybe on the campus, maybe it's at a cabin somewhere, and totally unbidden, unexpected, it comes over you, I'm alive. I'm a human being. I'm not alive like a tree or a rabbit. I'm I'm alive. I can relate to God. I, I can relate to people. I have feelings. I have thoughts. This is a wonder. And then you stir in, and he made me female. Or he made me male. He did this. He, God Almighty, in love and infinite wisdom, made me woman or man. And it should sweep over you as a grand thing. I feel so bad if any of you wishes you were something else. I mean, transgender stuff that's going on today is so sad. It is so sad. I, I have a friend named Paul who told me that his lawyer that had been his consultant for, um, I, I, mean, I mean, her, <laughs> She had been his lawyer for years, said, I need to talk to you. And she said, uh, um, I'm going to change the names here. I want on Monday f- next week for you to start calling me James because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change my sex. Now, he was floored because she was married and had no intention of getting a divorce with two little children, about eight and nine, who would now have two dads. And what I felt when I heard that was, we live 
in one of the most selfish times in history. Can you imagine doing that to your two little kids? Just because you want to. Just because you feel, feel more like being a man than a woman. I thought, that is the apex of selfishness. So it's, it is very real in this culture, and I just want you to be good with who you are in God's creation. Womanhood and manhood are a grand thing. Ask the Lord to bring your feelings into line with what he made you physically. And it may be a lifetime of struggle. Yeah, yeah, it might. But it's the way of fulfillment and eternal joy. So that's what I wanted to say about being human. God, God simply made us and he made us marvelously. And to be human as male and female is an astonishing thing. A grand thing, as Agatha Christie said. Second, I want to tell you a story. I made this up so it would work. Um, and I'm going, to, I'm going to position you in my church. I tried to do it here, uh, create the, recreate the story so it would work in Milwaukee in relation to these sessions, but the, t- the timing isn't right. And, and I don't know how you eat and so on. Uh, and, and I know my neighborhood at home and I know what, what happened. So um, this story is to illustrate some things about complementary. And I think a word picture is worth a thousand words. And so a guy and a gal are standing, say they're 20 years old, right? That'd be what some of you are. And they're standing, uh, waiting to come into worship service. A big, you know, big crowd, everybody's standing around. They don't know each other. But say they're in campus outreach together. And, uh, and, and they've kind of spotted each other. They're kind of like, hmm, interesting. And they just happen to be... <laughs> They just happen to be standing next to each other, and he says to her, doesn't even know her, they kind of see each other, um, you sitting with anybody? You know, <laughs> she, she doesn't say yes. <laughs> she says no. They sit together in worship, okay? Now, the dance has begun. They're sitting together in worship, and they, they notice how each sings. They notice how each listens. They notice the engagement. They, they, they're just totally tuned in to this other person's response to God and preaching and everything else. And both of them like what they see. These, these indefinable somethings that you notice. So, service is over. They're walking out. And he says, got any plans for lunch? I'd love to treat you. We could go down to Maria's. It's just a few blocks away. Neither of them has a car. But I, I know where Maria's is, and we can walk. Now, at that point, she is totally free to end the dance. And he made it easy for her. This is a good line, guys. <laughs> let, me, let me give you the words again. Do you have plans? That gives her an out right away. She can bail on this without any embarrassment, 
She's in charge at this moment, okay? He took initiative. She's, at this moment, it's her call. And she can say, I do. And, and it's over. He knows it's over. It's over. Because she could have said, in my story, she is going to say, I do, but I think if I made a call, I could change him. <laughs> so she, she took charge and she delivered a message. All right? I, I would like that. So he gave her the permission to bail. She, she didn't take it. She, she would like that. Okay, now they're walking to Maria's. And he learns on the way there that she's got a black belt in martial arts. <laughs> and she's one of the best in the state. Well, at 19th and 11th Avenue, a block from my house, I know this neighborhood, two men accost them, right? And they say, pretty girl you've got there. We want her purse and your wallet now. And uh, you know the neighborhood, and you reach for your wallet. You say, let's just give them the purse and the wallet. And then they say, she's really pretty. We think we want her. Now, at that moment, it might enter his mind, she's got a black belt in martial arts. <laughs> this, is, this is the crux of the story. And she could probably take these guys out. But not in a million years will a man do this. Step behind her and say, take them. <laughs> not in a million years. It is written... This is my opinion now, and it's rooted in the Bible. I'm, I'm telling this story not to learn my understanding of gender from the story. I'm telling the story to illustrate what I've learned elsewhere, namely, I think, in the Bible. So he takes her elbow like this and really squeezes it. She's got no choice at this moment. He really squeezes her elbow, and he just moves her back. And he says to these guys, if you touch her, you will do it over my dead body. And they knock him out, just cold, just cold. <laughs> I made this up, I can do what I want, right? <laughs> they knock him out cold. He's just gone. And he wakes up in the ambulance and she's sitting beside him and those two guys are flat on the pavement. Crowd is formed, policemen are there, ambulance is there. He's coming to in the ambulance. She's sitting beside him, and she's got one thought. I'd like to marry a man like this. Right. <laughs> I'd like to marry a man like this. See, not necessarily him. I don't know if that's going to work out. It's too early. Good night. Just, <laughs> we were on our way to our first lunch. <laughs> but what he just did. Now, here's the point of the story. Well, there's several points, but here's the main point. The main point of the story is that manhood and womanhood and the rhythms of the dance are not competency-based. She's clearly more competent at self-defense, way more 
competent. That did not decide the matter for him. And it shouldn't have. If you disagree with that, we're probably going to split our ways here. I'm saying to every one of you guys, superior competencies in a woman does not discharge you of certain manly things to do even though you can't do them very well. I would do the same thing about devotions, having devotions in a marriage. I've had guys say to me, I can't have my devotions. My wife is college grad. I graduated from eighth grade. I'm an eighth grade graduate. She's articulate. I can't barely read. And you expect me to lead her in family devotions? I say, yes, sir. Yes, sir. This is not competency-based. She wants you to step up and say, let's read, and then ask her to read, because <laughs> she can read. The, the question is, who says let's most often in this family? Is she always having to say, let's, 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 and you're just sitting there all the time because you don't have any competencies? No way. That's not what she wants from you. Of course she wants to use her gifts, but she wants you to lead and take initiative. So the, the, the central point of the story is the dance, the rhythm is not competency-based. There are things built into him and built into her that make the rhythm and the dance different than if they were switching roles. Here's a couple of other sub-lessons. Number one, he took the initiative standing there. She didn't say to him, are you sitting with anybody? He said to her, are you sitting with anybody? You should do that, guys. Secondly, he suggested that he treat her to the lunch, and he suggested a place. It's on me. Little signal, little signal about what it's going to be like to live with this man. He's not a leech. He's a provider. Even if she's going to work and make more money than he is. I know that. She might. Not against it. Not the point. The point is, is there a special sense of responsibility right here with me in relation to this one? I'm stepping up. I'm offering to take her to lunch. I'm going to foot the bill. I'm going to be, thirdly, a protector. I'm going to protect her. So now you've got initiative, you've got provision, and you've got protection. And those are my three definitions of mature manhood. And I haven't even talked about the Bible yet. I realize that. So that's where we probably need to go. So there's my story just to illustrate that mature manhood is a God-given sense that the primary responsibility, that word primary is so important, not soul, not only, but a primary responsibility that a man feels not as a right, but as a burden and a responsibility to carry through. And believe me, guys and women, to be the head at home is not easy. And if you think, I get to be that, you're crazy. You are crazy. You have no idea what you're signing up for. Because what you're signing up for is every time there's a dispute, every time there's a breakdown, every time anything goes wrong, you own it. And you take it forward. And you can't lie down and bellyache that it's her fault. Irrelevant. Irrelevant. 
to be the head is to go ahead. I tell you, it's the hardest thing in the world to be a husband and love like Jesus loved. To be ahead like Jesus was ahead. But now I'm getting into the Bible. I'm trying to define as a conclusion to that second point. I'll close with the Bible in just a minute. So mature manhood is a God-given sense of primary responsibility, not right. A primary responsibility lies with him for leadership and initiative and protection and provision. Primary responsibility, not sole responsibility. Not sole responsibility for provision, not sole responsibility for protection, not sole responsibility for initiative and leadership, but primary. At any moment, I feel the burden. It's my call to move forward as a couple. And his most common let's will probably be, let's talk about what needs to be done with these kids or with the finances or with where we go to church or with whether we buy a house or, 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 or he says let's. And she doesn't have to constantly say, we need to talk, we need to talk, we need to talk. And he's doing nothing. That's not the way it goes. Here's, here's a way to remember it maybe. If Jesus, if there's a problem in the family, between them or with the kids, and Jesus knocks on the door, knock, 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 because Jesus showed up, knock, knock, and she comes to the door and says, whoa, what are you doing here? Yeah. thought you were in heaven. <laughs> Jesus is going to say, no matter what the issue is, is the man of the house here? I need to talk to him. I, I, I'll talk to you soon, but first, I got some things to deal with with the man. I think that's the way it would go. He's got big issues with her. She's a sinner. Good grief. <laughs> I'm a sinner. Noel's a sinner. Two sinners saying I do. That's trouble. <laughs> and it is. It has been. It's been very hard and wonderful. No naive notions here, right? Two sinners living together for 47 years is a miracle. <laughs> We just celebrated on December 21, 47. So now, yeah, it is, it's pretty un, unusual these days, and I'm, I have one person to thank, and that is God. Because she didn't walk away, I didn't walk away, that's a miracle. Because you, I'd just love to stop here and talk about marriage. Um, when you get married, a few of you are married back there in the corner. Um, you can fall in love a hundred times. I promise you. Which implies falling out a hundred times. And if you bail on the marriage on the second or third falling out, you will miss the greatest things of all. I dream. I used to say I dream. Now it's almost true. I used to say I dream of being 80. I used to say 70. I am 70. So I dream of being 80 and my wizened wife and my wizened face, wrinkles everywhere, saggy things hanging over my belt here. And, and we're all just a, you know, there's nothing impressive at all about this couple. These, they're homely, they're saggy, they're balding and gray. And they're sitting in Duluth, okay, at a restaurant by the Lake Superior, Cross each other about this far and just order some croissant or something. 
That's all they sell in these kinds of places, you know. <laughs> you want a big, greasy burger, and they bring a croissant. So, so you're, you're sitting there, and, and you look at her, and you get the deepest, deepest joy you can imagine under God and say, we made it. We made it. Don't you want to be there for that? I'm asking you. Don't you want to be there for that? Boy, that's a great thing. A couple of texts and then I've got to stop. Ephesians 5. Maybe that's the only one we'll have time to look at. There's a zillion questions you have right now, and I totally affirm you're asking them. And I I wish we had five hours to talk about them because... These are huge issues with many unanswered questions. I'm just throwing out a vision for you. Let's read a few verses and, and I'll, I'll make some closing comments. Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. Wives, uh, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. As to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. His body And is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. That's just a a paraphrase of Jesus' statement, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Love your wives as you love your own body. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes. Note those words. I'm coming back. Nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. And then he quotes Genesis 2.24, pre Sin pre-fall. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's the most important passage on manhood and womanhood in the Bible. Four observations real quick. Number one, marriage is a drama, a dramatization of Christ's relationship to the church. That's the meaning of marriage. Find a spouse that believes that with you. It's the most important thing to believe together. What we are doing and saying till death do us part is modeling the covenant-keeping love between Christ and his church. That's breathtaking. 
Nothing is more high, nothing more holy, nothing more dignified, nothing more beautiful than two people modeling in this fallen world the covenant between Christ and his church. That's the first observation, and I base it on verse 32. This mystery is profound. He just said they leave mother and father and join one flesh. This mystery is profound. I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. I'm saying marriage refers to Christ and the church. I'm saying marriage means Christ and the church. Clearly you cannot marry an unbeliever, all right? But you also can make a lot of dumb mistakes inside the household of faith by marrying people. They don't get that. They don't get that. Don't go there. Be single the rest of your life. Singleness, by the way, is a very high calling. That's another whole seminar I'd love to talk about. I wrote a book on marriage called uh, This Momentary Marriage, A Parable of Permanence. This momentary marriage. Because there's no marriage in heaven. They neither marry nor giving in marriage, but are like angels in the sky. So it's a momentary thing. A little brief little window here where you get to be married. And I got two chapters in there on singleness. That's how important I believe singleness is in the church today. Okay, number two. First one, marriage is a drama of Christ and the church. Number three, in the drama, husbands take their cues from Christ and the wives take their cues from what God wills for the church. I base that on verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's the heaviest responsibility any man could take on. It's not a big right. Huffing and puffing and demanding. He died for his church that she would be splendid. I'm, I'm still learning this. I'm still learning this at 47 years on. You want her to be splendid? Die for her. Die to this desire. Die to this anger. Die to this resentment. Die, die, die. That's headship. And then verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ the head of the church. It's huge, right? It's just, that should make every woman tremble as she ponders marriage. Can I find a man I could trust? With that, that kind of, I think submit basically means I'm going to partner with you and affirm your leadership. That'd be the way to say it. You'll say, what does it mean for me to submit? It means I'm loving this man's leadership. I'm linking arms with him, going to use my gifts as God gives me opportunity, and I'm delighting in his initiatives and his leadership. And I'm affirming him. Take it. Let's run together in this. I'm right with you. Lead on. And, of course, it can go haywire in a hundred ways, right? He can become abusive, and then leadership is not leadership anymore. It's just ugly. It's ugly. And what woman wants that? No woman wants that. Marriage is a risk. That's that's why uh, Jesus said that this this saying is not for everybody. It's those to whom it was given. Marriage is a gift. Staying Staying married is a divine gift. A work of a miracle. So you, you, you fall in love with somebody, you should get on your face together and plead with God to give you the grace of loving each other. Not necessarily liking each other all those moments, just loving each other to the end. Till death do us part. That's observation number two. 
Two more quick. Number three, the primary responsibility for initiative, leadership, and for um, provision and for protection are laid primarily at the foot of the man. I really collapsed my last two points into one. Verse 25, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her in order to lead her into purity and and the fullest possible flourishing in Christ, that's that's the man's job. If If your wife isn't flourishing, it may be your problem. That's why Jesus knocks on the door and says, I want to talk to the man of the house because if the wife is angry all the time or depressed all the time or uh, antsy to get out of this house and this marriage all the time, she's going to talk to the guy first. He's going to talk to him first and then her. And And the other two, namely protection and provision, I see in verse 29. So I'm, I'm telling you where I got my story. See what I'm doing? I got my story from the Bible and then I made up the story. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, meaning his body and his wife now because they're one flesh. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes. And I think that implies nourishing provision. He takes care of her. She feels cared for. He's not sitting around expecting me to care for this family. He's up and at it. It's going to make something happen here. Yeah, we might have to partner together, put bread on the table because they're both making minimum wage and we live in a difficult time. But oh, how she loves his thinking and praying and talking and leading them both together to make this provision possible. And, And the last one is protection. And I think that's in the word cherish. He cherishes her. It's like, it's like if you hit your... I've been chopping wood for the first time. I got, somebody gave me a big load of wood behind my garage. We have a fireplace. I've never chopped wood before. So I have an axe that's rusty and hadn't been used for 30 years. I'm out there loving this. And I, I don't know what happened, but I dinged my thumb. Something awful. It's, I can just barely move it still. I don't know how it happened. I was just, where did that get, where did that happen? But I dinged it. I can't even move it. And I, I said, oh, thumb. I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm gonna take care of you. And you all do this, right? You ding, whatever you ding, and you, you love your body. And you will take care of her. You will, you, will, you will cherish. If she gets a threat of being dinged, you're on it. right? You're just on it. And she feels good about that. My man, don't let anybody mess with me. That's good. That's really good. So complementarians say biblical headship is the husband's divine calling to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, provision. And biblical submission is a wife's divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. So, Father, I pray now that this brief whirlwind effort 
to give a glimpse of what our culture finds foreign, this whole idea of headship, this whole idea of submission. Our culture finds it reprehensible, obscene, foreign. I pray that the beauty of it will land on these students and that you would so orchestrate all their relationships in the years to come that whether single or married, they might live to show the supreme value of Jesus. I ask this in his name. Amen.